Happy New Year, everybody. It's good to be back. Three weeks is way too long. When we took the two-week break, I had no idea that we would get snow coming to make our break even longer. So it feels wonderful to be back. It's good to see faces that are familiar and some new faces to welcome to the table. Um, love, can I just have my phone? It's going to act as my watch so that we're not all here at 8 p.m. Okay. Today I'm starting a series called Extraordinary. We will be working through together the Gospel of Mark over the coming months. And um, I feel really excited for what God is going to do in our community as we travel through this book together, learning from the life of Jesus. And so uh, I want to ask you, um, over the course of the next, next few months, be reading Mark, be delving into this book. There is so much here that is rich to teach us, to shape us, to transform us to equip us to be just like Jesus. And so um, we're going to start and mark in just one moment. But I actually want to read a prophecy from Isaiah first. The Gospel of Mark, some talk about it as the fulfillment of the book of Isaiah. And you'll see throughout the book of Mark, there are so many, it's laced with references to Isaiah showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of words spoken long ago. I'm going to read from Isaiah 63. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend, that you would tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. Let's read Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Remind you of anything we just read. Being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man who, with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all this surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told her about her. They told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Wow, can you imagine the pressure of that? And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's stop there. There's so much, even in these verses. The, the book of Mark is dense with, we could, <laughs> we could spend every week on each verse. In fact, when I was researching uh, to start this series, I was looking at how other people have broken this book up because I was thinking this is going to be the never-ending series. And um, sure enough, lots of other churches have done like 57 weeks on the book of Mark. And I was like, oh, I don't know if we can handle 57 weeks on the book of Mark. But there is so much in this book, it's really hard to just go chapter by chapter. But we're going to try. But today, I'm just going to give us some context for the book, and then we're going to jump into a few things that I believe marked Jesus, that we're being invited to mark us. But to give us some context for the book of Mark, first of all, it's most likely the first gospel that was written. There's been some back and forth about this over the years, but they think this was actually the first gospel that was written. And it's likely that the author was John Mark, who was a ministry associate of Paul's and of Peter's. And uh, John Mark's story is actually fascinating. If you read the book of Acts, you'll understand some of his own journey and some of his own growth process and maturity and discipleship with Jesus. It's fascinating that he He's the author of this book. But it's all written in a way where he gives his opinion in the first sentence. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's not hiding anything. He's telling you his position right from the beginning of the book. But the rest of the book is all written with his opinion taken out. He's just categorizing the events one after the other. There's an immediacy. We'll talk about why there is that. I hope if you were paying attention, you'll have noticed that I said immediately about 15 times in this one chapter. The whole book is like that. But he charts the course of events, not trying to insert to us his opinion other than this first sentence, but really trying to set out the course of what happened with an invitation to us to make a decision, do we agree with him or not? That's the reason for his writing. And I'll say this right at the beginning because we'll get there in about 20 weeks. 
that Mark ends in chapter 16. This is important for us to understand because it actually really impacts how we see this book. Mark ends chapter 16, verse number 8. Now, in most Bible translations, there are a few verses that come after that, which are summary verses. That are, Most translations will say this. Uh, mine says it this way. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verses 9 to 20. Um, and it's become increasingly thought by scholars that the earliest manuscripts are the accurate ones, that you want to stop the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. Now, you can read the rest of the verses. In fact, they echo what Matthew's Gospel says, so you don't need to panic. Your Bible is fine. It's accurate. It's good. But the thing about Mark's Gospel is it's helpful to end where the earliest manuscripts do, uh, because it's a very weird ending. And if you cover up that weird ending, you'll miss what Mark is trying to push the reader towards. I'll give you a spoiler alert. We'll get there in a few weeks' time. But it ends with kind of this strange place where the followers of Jesus are seized with terror and run away. They've heard of the resurrection. They're terrified. They run away. That's how the book ends. It's like, this is really odd to write this like, Jesus is the son of God. This is my proof for it. And end like dropping you off a cliff. It does it because Mark is written with its sights set beyond its ending. It's actually written the way Jesus would say many parables, which is it doesn't end with the writing. It ends, the conclusion of the writing is in the hands of the listener. The book is meant to end with your decision. That's how the book is intended to be finished. Where it drops off a cliff and the person who ends the story is not Mark, but is you and I. He's written a whole book, but the purpose of it is beyond the ending. And you can see that it's, it's there in the writing all throughout the book, actually, because Mark references things that don't even happen in the story. We, we read it. He talks about, John says, I have baptized you with water in verse 8, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism with the Holy Spirit to the disciples doesn't happen in the book of Mark. Mark writes something that actually happens after the end of the book. This is important for us because when we read this gospel account, we're not just reading a historical work. It is a historical work, but it's not written primarily for information purposes. It's written primarily for transformation. It's written so that the reader will be forced to a decision and will be forced towards uh, either following or walking away. That's the purpose of the book. And so I want to invite us as a church, as you're reading this book, don't just read it to learn more. Read it with really a question. Do I want to lean in to follow or do I want to walk away? That's what Mark is inviting each of us into as he writes this book. There's a couple of things about Mark 1 that are similar to the other Gospels, and a couple of things that are actually very different that are important to note. Uh, all of the Gospels have the baptism of Jesus uh, near the beginning of the story. It's important for us to understand that the Gospel writers thought the baptism of Jesus so important and so much of like the line in the sand, the before and after of Jesus' ministry, it starts with baptism. I want to make it really clear that the Bible doesn't put baptism in water as something random that is optional, but even in the life of Jesus, sees it as something so crucial to the sparking of his ministry. I want to say that clearly because at this church, we invite everybody who is a follower of 
of Jesus to be baptized in water, fully immersed in water in exactly the same way that Jesus was. Because in the Bible, this isn't something just weird that, ah, take it or leave it. This is something crucial to a life of following Jesus and crucial to a life of actually walking in his footsteps. Every single gospel writer, they're very different in what they include, in fact, throughout the gospels. But what's interesting is that every single one of them charts the beginning of Jesus' ministry with his baptism. If you want to know when did Jesus' ministry start, it started at his baptism. That's the moment where everything, 30 years with very little noise of what happened. We're actually going to reference one moment where we do know what happened before he he was baptized. But very little charted because it was just ordinary life growing up. But that baptism moment changed everything. And I want to encourage you, if you've not been baptized in water, you need to be baptized with water if you are a Jesus follower. It is part of your following in the footsteps of Jesus. But here's what's different. Mark, unlike all of the other Gospels, doesn't give us an origin story for Jesus. All of the other Gospels give us some background, give us some context, kind of lay out a little bit of a, uh, this is the history. You can already feel that Jesus is an important figure. Not so in Mark. Mark just kind of drops Jesus into a story. It's very ordinary the way it happens. Mark is a very blunt writer. He finishes bluntly, he starts bluntly. It's like really important person coming up. Mark starts with Jesus of Nazareth came up. Like it's, there's no fanfare. There's no credentials. And what Mark is doing is actually trying to lessen any way that he would influence other than giving you the historical account of what happened. It's important for us to understand. It's important to notice because he's not trying to emotionally convince you. He's trying to just tell you what Jesus did and let you make your mind up about who you think that person was. It's been said that Jesus didn't give us the option of us thinking that he was a good teacher. When you read the words of the book of Mark, the last thing that you're left with, oh, he was just some kind of, he's a nice guy. That's not an option left to us. He's either crazy or lying and somehow evil, or he's who he says he is. And Mark has really placed his gospel in that way, confronting us with the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. Okay, that's enough context. Let's talk about what Jesus was marked by. No pun intended. In chapter one, first thing I want us to notice, I've unusually got loads of notes today. Jesus, help us. First thing I want us to look at is that Jesus was marked by identity and affirmation. Jesus, in verse nine, we're told he comes up from Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as he comes up out of the water, immediately, it's the first time that word is used. That's important. We'll talk about that in a second. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Those verses that we read, that cry in Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens so that God would not be distant, but God would be here. Well, we know when you read John's gospel that the reality is Jesus is doing that, that Jesus is the one tearing open the heavens and coming on earth, moving into the neighborhood. But there's this reality that is seen in Mark of the very act that Isaiah 64 is crying out for is happening to Jesus over Jesus, the tearing open of the heavens. Every gospel is trying to tell us this thing, that God is no longer distant, that there is no wall of separation between you and God, that God has torn open what was a wall between you and him. It is no longer existent, which is why it's not actually biblical for us to sing songs that are like somehow come down from the heavenly realm. He's torn open the heavens. There's no barrier. This week, we found how significant barriers can be as our concrete wall leaked water into our house. 
No barrier. Water coming from the outside to the inside. We said it would preach. Here we go. It's in a preach. Water coming from the outside to the inside. There was no point at that point of being like, oh, I wonder if there's an open barrier. Yeah, there's water inside the house. Sometimes we act like people who are blind to water flowing into the house because all of the gospels are saying to us, the heavens have been opened, God has moved in. We're still praying prayers as if the heavens weren't opened. Open your eyes. He's moved in. You don't need to ask for what has already happened. And in this moment, the heavens are torn open. It's actually the same word that is used later on in Mark's gospel when Jesus is crucified and we're told that the temple curtain that kept people out from the Holy of Holies was torn open. It's the same word. There is a tearing opening happening that cannot be reversed that we're seeing happening right now. So in this moment, the heavens are torn open. But it's interesting that this is a personal moment for Jesus. Mark makes it very clear. And when you read the other Gospels, you see this too, that this was a Jesus experience. This was not a public moment. Uh, Whilst the heavens were torn open, he saw the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This was a personal, this wasn't a public statement. Later on in the transfiguration moment, if any of you have read that story, where Jesus is with some of his disciples, God speaks to the disciples present and says, this is my beloved son. He's making an announcement to others who are present. But in this moment, the father is speaking to the son personally. This is not for the benefit of others. This is for the benefit of Jesus. I want us to notice this because sometimes we're eager for public encounters but have no time for private ones. But right at the start of Jesus' ministry, God isn't trying to impress the crowd. He is needing to speak to his son for a moment because there is something crucial happening privately that will set up everything publicly. You are my beloved son. This is not a public announcement. This is a moment of intimacy, a father to a son. And so before Jesus has done anything other than be baptized, the heavens are torn open. He has an encounter with the Holy Spirit coming to rest upon him. And he hears his father's voice of one, identity, and two, of affirmation. You're my son, in you I am delighted. There is this reality that we have to understand that everything that comes after this is built on this moment. Every moment of following Jesus that you are invited into, every high, every low, there will be some lows. Every crazy faith adventure, if it is not built on a voice of identity and affirmation from the Father that has come first, you will find yourself exhausted in a little while. You will not be able to sustain a life of following Jesus if it is striving for his affection and his affirmation. You have had to have heard this voice, this truth over you. And this is one of the beautiful realities of being baptized in the Spirit. Sometimes people ask me, what is baptism in the spirit? What is the point of it? What happens after it? And the Bible is clear. There's multiple things that happen. One of them is power, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But the reality for Jesus is his baptism in the spirit experience, the spirit coming, overwhelming him, and resting on him, gave him a revelation of his sonship and the love of God for him. And you find in our lives that that's the purpose of the Spirit. When people are baptized in the Spirit, they suddenly encounter a security in who they are and what God thinks about them. Something is sealed, set in stone in them. That's what baptism in the Spirit does. It's one of the ways to know if you really were baptized in the Spirit or not. There's this reality of setting in. If you are still constantly confused about whether God loves you, about whether you really are a child of God or not, I want to ask you, have you encountered the Spirit? Because we see this time and again in Scripture. 
The Spirit brings confidence in your identity and in the affection of the Father over you. And so Jesus' ministry is marked by this. I do want us to just delve into these words just quickly because there's multiple layers to what the Father says over the Son. Of course, identity and affirmation, they're obvious. But there's actually some Old Testament uh, stories that the Jewish readers would have understood. First of all, you are my son is actually a direct quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was... um, a royal psalm. It was read at the inauguration of new kings. It's a kingly psalm. And in Psalm 2, it talks about how you are my son. Today, I have become your father. In fact, let's, I've put these things in here. God help me. Let's see if we can find it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits on the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is important because the layers of what the Father is speaking over the Son isn't just identity as sonship, but identity as king. There's something very powerful in what is being said here. The rulership of Jesus is being affirmed, not just his sonship. And Jesus, as a Jewish man, would have understood this. You are my son. This is a Psalm 2 moment. This is a reigning moment in this verse in this words of affirmation. The second thing is, um, you are my beloved son, the beloved. In fact, in the Greek, it's written, you are my son, my beloved. Now, my beloved would have made everyone think of Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac, because that's where you get a son who is clearly called a son who is beloved. The story in Genesis 22 is one of sacrifice, is one of having a beloved son that is then taken to be sacrificed, and then God breaks in with provision that stops that moment. But there's one of an understanding of sacrifice and provision laced in the story. Jesus would understand that this is something heavier than just a high five moment. But there's significance, there's sacrifice, there's God's provision, which of course we understand is exactly who Jesus is for us being said in this verse. And then with you, I am well pleased. Isaiah 42, it's a messianic prophecy actually. It's talking about the Lord's chosen servant. And it's all about how the one in whom the Lord is well pleased will bring justice. So when Jesus hears these words, not only is it identity, not only is it affirmation, but it is purpose. He is being imparted in that moment, imbued with all that he will need to walk out every moment of the next three years. I want to say to us, if we have not had a moment with God, this isn't about audibly hearing his voice, but it is about understanding who he says we are and his love and affection for us. If we have not had that, we need to pause We need to read scripture until we encounter him by his Holy Spirit because you cannot follow in the footsteps of Jesus without experiencing this. It will leave you exhausted. The first thing Jesus is marked by, identity and affirmation. Who defines you? Who do you allow to define you? Because Jesus doesn't do anything until he has had his definition. So many of us are busy doing something so that we will gain our definition. This is something for us to process personally. Only you will be able to say if you're looking for someone or something to define you. But if that is what you are doing, I want to invite you, stop. Go back to God the Father. Invite his definition. It will change the trajectory of your life. 
identity and affirmation. Secondly, presence and authority. His baptism moment in water and in the spirit, because both happen simultaneously for Jesus. The baptism moment changes everything. I wrote in my notes, 30 years of meh suddenly goes boom. That's what happens. You can quote that somewhere. Profound, absolutely profound. But that's what happens. 30 years of nothing much of interest to talk about. Things happening to him. Yeah, interesting moments in history, but not much to report. That's why we don't have it. There was not much to report. He was a boy growing up. But then suddenly, he has an encounter with the Spirit, and everything goes from mm, to immediately. Immediately, immediately, immediately he went. Immediately he said. Immediately they followed. Immediately the sick came. Immediately they were healed. Immediately the demon cried out. Immediately the man was delivered. Immediately, immediately, immediately. What happened first? Baptism in the Spirit. I find it fascinating that one of the stories that we do have of Jesus as a boy is when Jesus is 12. I think it's in Luke's gospel, somewhere in my notes. I'll find it in a second. Yes, Luke 2, 47. Jesus is 12. He goes to the temple. He's actually not great because he um, forgets where his parents are. His parents move on. It's a big story. It's an interesting story. Read it, Luke 2. And... Um, we're told in Luke 2 that Jesus is talking with the, with the teachers of the law in the temple. And we're told they were amazed at his understanding, insight, logical reasoning, if you look at the Greek word. Before his baptism in the Spirit, Jesus' grasp of scriptures was amazing in understanding. After baptism in the Spirit, Jesus' grasp of scriptures is amazing in authority. There's a difference. So many of us preaching from the Bible, amazing in understanding. Oh, that we would be drenched in the Spirit, that we would be people of authority. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference to me explaining these words to you and being so overcome by the power of the Spirit that I speak them with authority. The word authority is the power to act. It means that we don't just describe them, we demonstrate them. It's a total difference. And it happened to Jesus. That difference happened to Jesus in the baptism of the Spirit. See, he's marked by identity and affirmation. He's then marked by presence and authority. It's significant that the first immediately that we see is the immediate presence of the Spirit, and then everything else is marked by the, that same urgency. The reason Mark uses the word immediately so many times, which actually, funnily enough, in the NIV, I don't know if this is true of any other translation. I just read this in a commentary this week. In the NIV, they get so bored of the use of the word immediately that they drop it from sentences once in a while because it's like this is getting really repetitive. There's a purpose to the word. Word, it's about unrivaled authority. Everything that Jesus said happened. There was no question. There was no delay. There was no umming and eyeing. He said, come follow me. The people dropped their nets, walked to him immediately. Of course, it's hyperbole in the writing, but the message of it is his authority was unrivaled. There's a purpose in that word. Every time you see it, understand that what Mark is saying is, no one was this man's equal. He had authority to call people and redefine their destiny. He had authority to deliver people from their demons. He had authority to heal the sick in public and in the homes. He had authority to heal on the Sabbath. He had authority to forgive sins. He had the authority for anything and everything, to walk on water, to calm the storm. All of it happening immediately because he is unrivaled. That's the point that Mark is trying to make. Presence and authority. This is why baptism in the Spirit is not an optional extra. 
cannot be. You can go from someone with understanding where people will be wowed by your scholarly intellect or go into being someone who has the authority not only to describe it beautifully, but to demonstrate it practically. I know which one I want to be. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Where are we? Who knows? Holy Spirit, help us. Do you know what's interesting is that the first thing Holy Spirit does. See, Holy Spirit baptizing you is not just for fun and giggles, goosebumps, a little bit of power here or there. It is actually for confronting the works of darkness. The first thing that Holy Spirit does with Jesus is overwhelming him with his presence is to directly lead him into the desert where he will confront the enemy. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with the desire for the giggles in Holy Spirit, but have no desire to be used to advance the kingdom. He can't have it one way or the other. A life filled with the Spirit will by nature confront the works of darkness. I'm not saying go and hunt down dark places. Please don't. That's not what happened. Be led by the Spirit. But the reality is if we're living lives led by the Spirit, we will find ourselves encroaching onto enemy territory because guess what? The gospel is advancing and the enemy is on the defense. The enemy loves to tell us it's the other way around, that Christians are in a defensive position and he holds the ground. That's nonsense. The gospel is advancing. And right here, Jesus is led by the Spirit into desolate places. Traditionally, desolate places would be somewhere aimless, somewhere that isn't blessed, somewhere that is fruitless, somewhere that is lonely. And Jesus, yes, he spends 40 days fasting and praying. Hey, heads up, we're going to be fasting and praying. This is an advert for it. He spends some time fasting and praying, but he overcomes the enemy in that place. And do you know what? We see in Mark's gospel again and again, Jesus goes to desolate places after this, but he uses desolate places for miracles and for intimacy. He finds victory in the first desolate place that we see, and every other desolate place that we see is filled with fruitfulness. I want to say something to us, that when we take places that are full of darkness, when the Spirit leads us to encroach into territory that would not traditionally be known as kingdom of light places, but we are to advance the kingdom there, we will see fruitfulness where traditionally there has been none. We will find in places where we can find intimacy and miracles where no one would have thought that that would be possible in those places. Jesus turns desolate places into places of intimacy and healing. I wonder what he wants to do with the places that are desolate in you. Authority and presence. Notice that Holy Spirit, when he leads Jesus into the desert, the enemy goes after the very thing that God has spoken to him. The last thing that God says is the first thing that the enemy fights. This is my beloved son. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus goes into the desert. The enemy says, now we don't see this in Mark. You're going to have to look at Luke 4 or Matthew 4 for this. But they fill for us what happens in the temptation moment. The first thing the enemy says is, if you are the son of God. See, there's this thing that you've got to guard what God says. You're going to have to fight for that thing. Once it's given, it's your responsibility to steward, and that means to defend. That means to be, uh, grow some spiritual muscle in refuting what the enemy says about it, because he'll have something to say about it. Oh, you know what? I've received this amazing prophetic word. It really encouraged me, but the very next day someone said, it, that can't be true of me. I'm just not sure what happens. I, I, don't, I don't know what to believe anymore. Hey, read the Bible. You are the son of God if you are the son of God. Understand the MO of the enemy and then get on with it. Jesus, help us. Julian's laughing because he's remembering conversations we've had just over the last 24 hours. I feel very convicted right now. It's okay. <laughs> Oh, Lord, thank you for the grace of preaching. Let's keep going. Okay, notice that Jesus' authority 
first works out with him being empowered to overcome internal temptation rather than exercise it externally. This is what I mean by this. Sometimes we, we want authority. We want to be people of authority so that we can go take a city or so that we can pray healing over others or so that we can cast out demons, all of which happen in authority in Jesus. But I wonder if first that authority is to be exercised in getting over offense and in learning how to forgive, overcoming our personal temptations, See, we're so obsessed with what's happening over there. And I wonder if God is wanting to empower us to deal with what's happening in here. Jesus is first fighting the battle for authority based on what he wants. Hi, you're hungry. If you're the son of God, make this bread. It's a personal battle. No one else is impacted by that. The temptation is one that he fights internally. Hi, if you're really the son of God, why don't you just worship me and I'll give you everything? Jesus could have bypassed the cross. That's what the enemy is tempting him to. Bypass the cross and worship me. I'll give you what you want. Freebie. I'll give it all to you. It's an internal temptation. He's exercising authority internally before he exercises it externally. Now, of course, God is gracious. He leads us all on journeys. I'm not saying you've got to be perfect before you do anything. None of us will ever do anything if that's the case. But I do think there's something important for us to recognize that when Holy Spirit empowers us, he doesn't just empower us for the sake of others. He empowers us to break some things within. And sometimes we are unwilling to deal internally, but all we want to do is deal externally. We can't do that and follow destiny for a whole lifetime. At some point, we will burn out. Allow the authority that he gives you in the Holy Spirit to work internally as much as you're hungry for it to work externally. Last one. A few minutes to go. Identity and affirmation, presence and authority, security and intimacy. I love looking at these verses, how Jesus just doesn't do the expected ever. Not just in whether he heals or not. There's miracles happening. It's all nuts. I understand that. But in a Jewish environment, the first thing he does, which Mark doesn't make a huge deal about, except he does in a nuanced way. He goes into the temple on the Sabbath. He casts out a demon. That's technically against the rules on the Sabbath. If you read other Gospels and later in Mark, they'll start making a big deal about Jesus doing stuff on the Sabbath because it annoyed people, because he's going against their traditional rules. But Jesus, once he is filled with an understanding of his identity, his destiny, the affirmation of God, once he is covered in authority, he starts walking out his plan, not in an offensive way, uh, just to be offensive, but in the reality of being so secure in who he is that he's not going to follow man-made rules, but he's going to do the will of his father. There's something very uh, secure in he, how he walks out his ministry. What's interesting is you see that once he's done that casting out moment, and we read about this in Mark, uh, and he goes to um, Peter's house, he heals his mother-in-law. We're told that after sundown, they brought all of their sick to him. Why after sundown? Because the Sabbath ended. They're all still desperately following the rules. They haven't noticed that Jesus has already blurred the lines. There's a security in which he's walking. He's not trying to offend them, but he is showing them a new way. A new way that is actually about bringing life, not just following the letter of the law. There's this other sense that I find is fascinating about his security of who he was, that he was not craving or needing fame or recognition from anyone else. In fact, we see again and again, whether it's demons or just people who he healed, who recognized who he was, he asked them not to say anything or commands them when it's talking about demons. Some of us are so desperate for anyone to recognize who we are because we haven't got our identity part correct. 
that will take it from anyone and everyone. But not all recognition is going to bless you. Not all fame is the gift of God. Not all fame is favor. Oh God, if we would understand this in the church. The amount of Christians who are talking about following their favor and what they mean is human beings recognizing who they are. And I'm thinking, have you read the Gospels? Because more often than not, Jesus was telling human beings who thought they recognized him, say nothing at all. It's because we are not secure in our identity that we're looking for anybody else to affirm it. Jesus had such a security of who he was that he refused to go on the timeline of the enemy or of other human beings to out him for who he was. He was doing the will of his father. There was a trajectory that was important. And in fact, the more news of him spread, the more difficult it was for him to do what he was meant to do. I wonder how true that is of many of us and we don't even realize it that we're inviting recognition because we crave something, but we don't understand we're delaying our destiny in the process. The last thing about this is his prayer time, security and intimacy. I love that in all of the hoo-ha, he gets up early and he goes to pray. And his disciples come and find him, and they're marveling. They're like, what on earth are you doing? (laughs) They say to him, Simon, those who were with him, searched for him. They found him, verse 37, said to him, everyone is looking for you. Hey, it's a big deal. There's a lot of crowds. People are all talking about you. What are you doing here in this desolate place? They don't understand it as a place of intimacy. What are you doing in this desolate place? Come on, there's lots to do. Get on with it. What I love is it's the intimacy that allows Jesus to withstand the pressure. Everyone wants a piece of you. And he says, no, we're moving on. We're going somewhere else. I want to say to us, we live in times that are so pressurized that most of us are overwhelmed with anxiety, and I'm not belittling that. I know what it feels to feel anxious. But I wonder if there's a key here that we're overlooking, which is getting up early to pray, to precede the moments of pressure. Pray and you'll be able to withstand what is coming. He's praying, moment of security and intimacy. Everyone wants a piece of you. I can't even imagine the monumental pressure that was on this man as he walked out the next three years. Everywhere he went, even to get away, hundreds would gather wanting a piece of him. And yet he's able to withstand that, following the will of his father, because intimacy and security precedes the pressure. See, we're doing prayer and fasting this week, not because, I hope, not because we're trying to twist God's arm, because that's not how it works. God is kinder than we can ever imagine He's already ready to do you good. You don't need to twist his arm for anything. But in these moments, we are preceding the pressure. We're standing in a place of intimacy. And we're saying, fill us afresh so that even as this city's solutions feel more and more challenging, even as we grow and there's more and more need, even as our jobs get harder and harder, even as our college work gets more and more overwhelming, we will be sustained by security and intimacy. There's something so powerful about how he chose to order his life. And I want to challenge us to order ours in kind. So much more to stay on this. But these are the things that I wanted to point out for us today. Identity, affirmation, presence, authority, security, and intimacy. If you've not been baptized in water or the spirit, you need to get baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a no-brainer. Don't do life without doing those things. Invite Holy Spirit. If you've not been baptized in the Spirit, honestly, come and speak to us. We'd love to pray for you. I want to ask you, if you're craving something of a definition of who you are, pause. Invite God to define you. Start reading your Bible with the question of who am I. Allow him 
to define who you are, everything else will change for you. Allow who he says you are and his presence to be the stem of all authority. So many Christians are getting this wrong and we think our louder voices and our bigger platforms and our more offensive language will somehow garner us authority. That's not how it works. Identity and the Spirit's presence is all that flows into authority. And prayer before pressure. You might be under pressure now. It's fine. Still pray. But I want to invite us into reordering our lives that we allow prayer, intimacy, to build a life of security so that as pressure comes, we're able to withstand it. And finally, I want us to really gain faith for what Jesus wants to do in desolate places. I find that one of the most remarkable things about the writing in Mark. Desolate places get transformed because he's able to win a victory in the first desolate place. Let's stand together. We've got so much more that we're going to work through Mark. This book is going to kick our butts in the best way. But we're just going to pray for a moment. We're going to land the meeting soon. But I, I want to give us opportunity to experience Holy Spirit together. Uh, I want to ask you, if you're part of the leadership team, come and grab a prayer badge. Let's get just a few of you. Please come up. Just be ready for prayer. There's going to be a few people up here for prayer. If you would like to receive prayer today for anything that I've spoken about or anything else, you're welcome to come up. These guys are wonderful, faithful people, and they will be able to pray with you today. But I want to just invite us corporately for a moment. Just close your eyes. Feel free to open your hands. It's just a sign of being open to Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we love you. We honor your presence. We thank you, Jesus, that the heavens have been torn open. And we invite you, God, come and fill us. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come in. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would meet with men and women here in this room that you would so encounter us, that you would define us, that men and women here would hear your voice speaking to them of who they are and what they've been made for, that we would be men and women so convinced of what you have said to us, that we would find authority stemming from that place of identity and an encounter with your presence. In Jesus' name, I pray. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.